We'll hear argument first today in Maryland versus Blake. Ms. Green. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In Edwards versus Arizona, this Court held that a suspect has a choice after invocation of the right to counsel to change his mind and initiate further contact with the police. The question in this case is whether that choice should be taken away and a suspect's decision to speak presumed involuntary when a police officer first makes an improper comment. The answer should be no when the impropriety is cured. When under all of the circumstances, a reasonable person in the suspect's position would understand that it was the suspect's choice whether to speak or remain silent and that the police would honor that choice and stop questioning, a decision to speak should be deemed initiation under Edwards. What has to be considered by way of evidence in evaluating whether the suspect has initiated the additional conversation? Is it appropriate in this case to consider the age of the person? Yes, I think you would look at a reasonable person in the suspect. And the fact that on the um, charges which he saw, it said he was subject to the death penalty, but that was not correct? That would go to whether the statement was voluntary. It would not go to the It would not, you would not consider it in connection with the initiation? No, the per- no, the purpose of Edwards was to prevent police badgering, to prevent police conduct that conveys directly or indirectly that the police are going to continue questioning until they get a statement despite the invocation of the right to counsel. Well, um, I, 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 I suppose that if they knowingly uh, put death on in, in, in order to uh, get him off his balance, uh, that would be badgering, wouldn't it? The inqu- the- the purpose of Edwards was to prevent police questioning. So when a curative measure conveys that the police are not going to question any longer. Well, but the, the initial question, Justice O'Connor asks, is, is, is do we consider these other factors? And then, but you're, you're, you're talking now about curing. And my answer is no, that we do not consider what the death sentence. There's two in Bradshaw. Why consider age? I mean, the, 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 both of them go to the same point, and that is what would a reasonable person suppose the suspect's understanding was at that point, and would it be fair to conclude that the suspect was, in fact, initiating conversation rather than responding to the police or doing something irrational? And I don't see why, the, the, in effect, the false statement about the death penalty, or true statement about the death penalty, for that matter, doesn't go to the same point just as the suspect's age goes to it. Because the critical inquiry is whether the suspect understood that it was his choice and that the police would stop questioning. But the, so the, but the, the trial judge made certain findings. He heard these witnesses. He heard the police officers. And he suggested that the police officer, Reese, was playing a good cop, bad cop game with Detective Johns. And so that this, the uh, statement made by Reese, you'll want to talk to us now, huh, was designed to elicit an answer. And the trial court also said there's an additional factor, and that is this charge that was intimidating even if it didn't have death on it, wasn't presented to Blake immediately. It could have been presented when he was put in the cell 
initially. So there were those factors. It, those are relevant, are they not, to the character of what Blake said? I think what you look at the relevant factors are the factors that go to whether a reasonable person would understand that questioning was going to stop. This, this court has said that the two factors that I mentioned, would they be relevant to a fact finder's determining what a reasonable person in that situation, with the two police officers appearing, with the charges not being presented immediately, not being presented at the time the Miranda warnings were given, but only after. Would those be would those be relevant factors to decide if this was a, a voluntary initiated request to talk to the police? No, because I think what you're looking at is not voluntariness. You're looking at knowing. Did the suspect know that the questioning was going to stop? Well, yeah, but it, you're, it has you're to be voluntary. Something if, if you held the man's hand to a, 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 a burning iron, we would we'd say that's not voluntary. It's involuntary. So it, it has to be voluntary, certainly in the lay sense of the term. Uh, then the law has a certain accretive force when we talk about you know, involuntary as, 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 as a matter of law. But what we're, what we're talking about, it seems to me, is rather uh, a common-sense inquiry as to whether or not it was voluntary, as to which I don't think you necessarily lose your case, but it seems to me that these, these have to be considered in determining whether or not it's voluntary. Well, I think that's the second step of the analysis. The first step of the analysis, which is what this case is before the court, is on initiation. Now, voluntariness... Well, but, but I, 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 you can't initiate something involuntarily and have that count, can you? you say, I, let's say involuntarily in the, in, in the lay sense of the word, in the commons sense of the word, where, where it was actually physically coerced, that wouldn't count. It would be an involuntary statement under the second step right. of the analysis. No, but what about the, no, first no, it's the first part of the analysis? In the first how, part of the analysis, how, our the first part of the analysis is whether or not he initiates. Yes. And you're trying to tell us that the initiation can be involuntary? I, I just don't. I just don't agree with that. Well, what we're trying to say is that the purpose of Edwards was to prevent badgering, where the police convey. Right, but suppose the police uh, are twisting his arm behind his back until he initiates. A further discussion. You would say that's fine? Well, you have to concede. Well, if they're twisting their back, you're not thinking they're going to stop questioning. I mean, what you're looking no, at aren't is... Aren't you, aren't you confusing Miranda, which is a question of comprehension followed by voluntary waiver, with the question of initiation? They are separate questions. And, and what, our, what we are trying to get at is... If there is going to be an initiation on the suspect's part, doesn't it have to be a voluntary initiation? Your answer consistently is, did he know that questioning would stop? And and those are two different issues. One is understanding Miranda warnings. One is voluntarily initiating uh, a further conversation with the police. So I don't see it. Let's, Let's assume he perfectly understood the Miranda warnings. But if the initiation was not a voluntary initiation or an initiation at all, it seems to me you lose. Well, Maryland's position is that if you look at the analysis in Elstad and Seibert, where what this court said is you don't look at whether something caused something else. You look at whether there was a cure in the sense that the suspect understood his rights. Ms. Grant, is is there any case which says that an initiation is not voluntary as opposed to a confession being not voluntary because the suspect has been charged 
with a crime greater than what the uh, police uh, believe they can prove, or if the police advise him that he's been charged with a greater crime than what he's really been charged with, is there any case which says that the effect of that is to cause his initiation of discussion to be involuntary? Not that I'm aware of. Do you take the position that initiation is a purely formal inquiry, a matter of magic words? If he says the equivalent of, I guess I'll talk to you, that's all you look at? What you look at, as in Seibert, is what... Oh, but ask, answer my question. Is that all you look at? You, you look at whether he understood that the questioning was going to cease, and it was up to him now, whether to you're, you're avoiding my question. Not my sorry. question is, is the act of initiation a purely formal act on your view, so that so long as the suspect says the magic words... It doesn't matter what is in his mind or what he understands. Is it formal or not formal? No. It's not formal. What you need to look at is whether an objective person in the suspect's position would understand that questioning was going to cease, and there was be no more questioning. But, but I, I think we can. I, I think that's a given. The question is whether or not he agrees. Uh, he indicates uh, affirmatively that he wants to begin talking. And here there's no question he wanted to begin that, that's talking. That's the issue, it seems to me. And there's no question here that he wanted to begin talking. Now, suppose, suppose, I don't understand all these legal terms here, imagine, maybe close to the truth. Uh, now, uh, we have a case, a hypothetical. The defendant is sitting there. The police say, question, and he says, I want to see my lawyer. And the policeman says the following, that's fine. Go ahead, we'll get him. By the way, if you see him, we'll execute you. Are you sure you don't want to talk to us? That's plainly unlawful, isn't it? Involuntary, under the second now, step of the now, analysis. Now, the same thing happens, but what he says is, you better talk to us or you'll be executed. Think about it. Equally unlawful, right? It would be involuntary okay. under the Now, a minute steps. passes while he's thinking about it. Okay. Is it, is it unlawful now because a minute has passed before he says yes? It would make it un, unlawful, involuntary, but again, I, I just, there's a two-step process. I don't, under, I don't want legalism. I just want the conclusion. The, a minute has passed before he says yes. Has that changed everything and it becomes lawful? No. No. Now it's 15 minutes. Now it's 30 minutes. Okay? Now a court says 30 minutes is the same as one minute. We don't think the passage of 29 extra minutes made a difference. And what's your reply? Not in legalism. You're going to say, oh, no, the passage of 30 minutes rather than one minute makes all the difference, and I would like to know why. Actually, our position is more Detective Johns's actions rather than the passage of time was a factor, but the more significant I, yes, thing here. Yes, that's fine. I'm not, I'm, I want you to say that kind of thing. You're saying it's not just 30 minutes. It's also some other things happen. What? Significantly, Detective Johns's conduct and his words, when, when Officer Reese made the improper statement, Detective Johns immediately and firmly The improper statement was, I bet you want to talk now, huh? Yes. Right. And yes. immediately, the other Detective Johns, immediately? Yes. Immediately. Said what? Immediately said, no, he doesn't want to talk to us. He already asked for a lawyer. We cannot talk to him now. So and that's possible. Him. That definitely cuts in your favor, unless, of course, 
it sounds like a good cop, bad cop routine. And there, there, was, there was no finding that this was a good cop, bad no. cop routine. In, in, fact, in, in fact, there was a finding that John's testimony was credible. Yeah, John's testimony was credible and that John did not intend this to happen. That's subjectively was, true. And so I simply wonder if the fact that it's subjectively true and there is a finding that the uh, defendant here, we have 30 minutes, and we have the fact that the other detective said, he said he can't talk to us, we can't do anything about it. Uh, we have that. Is there anything else? We have that Detective Johns then pushed him out of the cell, yeah. and they left, so the police initiation was terminated. And then when Detective Johns came back 28 minutes, he didn't say anything, yeah. he didn't ask any questions, and it was Blake who initiated and said clearly he wanted to talk to the police. All right, so we may, have I ask, may I ask you two rather elementary questions? One of the issues is whether when he spoke and said, can, uh, can I talk now, was that voluntary or not? Who has the burden on whether it was or not voluntary, the state or the defendant, in your view? The state has the burden to show that he initiated. And so the state did have the burden. And what is your view on the fact that the trial, the judge who heard the evidence said they had not met the burden? What kind of deference is, is owing to that finding? We think none because the trial court did not focus on the proper analysis. The trial court focused on a causal connection analysis that this court has rejected. May I, may in I, before we get to that, I read the trial court's um, opinion, and it didn't seem to me that it was playing, as Justice Breyer said, this game of legal words and labels. It was saying there are things to suspect here. Yes, I credited Detective uh, Johns. But he was asked, why did you bring along Reese? You didn't need him. And there was no answer to that. And there was also no explanation after they left Blake in his cell. Reese just having said, I bet you want to talk to us now, huh? There was nothing said to assure Blake that that was not, uh, you better talk to us, you're going to be in trouble kind of thing. There was just the statement by Blake and another Miranda warnings. All of those things, the judge said, wait on his mind, and he reached the conclusion that the government hadn't sustained its burden on the basis of those factors. So, is that clearly erroneous? I mean, don't we defer to the judge's findings? If the inquiry is a clearly erroneous, yes. But our position is that whether or not there was initiation is a mixed question of fact and law, whether a reasonable person would understand the questioning was going to stop. And so when you look at this reasonable person analysis, you don't give deference to the findings of the lower court. And if I could reserve the rest of my time if there are no more questions. Thank you, Ms. Gray. Mr. Feldman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. An improper question or comment under Edwards can be cured if the police terminate the questioning and make it clear to the suspect that they will honor his decision whether or not to talk to well, him without Well, tell us what factors, in your view, can be considered. I, uh, I the think defendant's age the improper charge, what else can be I think all of those things can be present in any Miranda case, 
and are taken care of in a normal Miranda analysis as to whether it was voluntary or not. The problem here is that — Well, but what we're trying to determine is what do you consider in determining whether he is a reasonable person initiating the discussion. Right. And I think you could say that all of those voluntariness factors should be looked at in terms of initiation, although I just think the analysis would be exactly the same as if you were asking whether he made a voluntary waiver. It's the same voluntariness analysis. Now, in the case of the — Well, I'm not so sure, because voluntary waiver is measured against a Miranda warning. And by definition here, you don't have a Miranda warning because we're asking about whether initiation. So it seems to me there's a threshold inquiry of voluntariness to determine whether or not there was a voluntary initiation, and that that does not comprehend or require a Miranda warning. Otherwise, you're double-counting. You never — there's never — first of all, he had gotten a Miranda warning initially, and that was when he said he wanted to see a lawyer, and that was — that had happened. Secondly, whenever there's an initiation case, you've never had another Miranda warning before the initiation. And what the police did here — I agree with that, but I want — what I think the Court is trying to find is some explanation of the threshold test for determining whether or not there was a voluntary initiation. I think we agree, or at least I agree, that there shouldn't be any Miranda warning required. That doesn't go into the mix, any new Miranda warning. Right. But still, the — there has been already a Miranda warning. But still, the question should be — can be broken down into two parts. As the Court said in Oregon against Bradshaw, you have to — it's useful, at least, to separate the question of initiation, which is a more limited question, from the broader question of voluntariness of a waiver or voluntariness of a waiver. Mr. Feldman, do you agree that the State had the burden of proving voluntariness at the second stage? Yes. And why — why should we not credit the finding of fact by the — by the trial judge? Well, if the — Who found it was not voluntary. The — the middle-level — what Maryland has argued that the middle-level — There was no Edwards violation, so that doesn't contribute anything to the diet. The State has argued that actually, given the procedures in this case, the defendant waived his voluntariness claim. But in any event, the State — the Maryland court of appeals — Well, you just told me you agree that the burden was on the State to prove voluntariness, but I still haven't heard your answer to why we should not credit the finding of fact by the trial judge. Well, I'd say — well, two things. One is the Maryland court of appeals itself specifically said that it did not admit voluntariness. I don't care what the Maryland court of appeals said. Not the middle-level court, but the — The highest court in Maryland also credited the finding. No, I don't think so. The highest court in Maryland said we are not going to decide anything about voluntariness. We're only going to decide something about initiation. Well, in any event, we have a finding of fact by the trial court before us, and I don't — I still don't understand from your point of view, why shouldn't we credit that? And I don't think — because I don't — that court was relying on a — on the question of initiation. What that court was doing was saying we're going to do a kind of voluntariness light here and take all the facts that might suggest it's not voluntary and count them and say, well, give those plus whatever it means it's not — You disagree with the finding. Isn't it — aren't we entitled to give it some presumption of validity? Well, I think that the trial court — the trial court — I think it — no, I don't think so, because I think the trial court was not operating under the correct standard of what you're supposed to — of what initiation consists of. Because it's a mixed question of law and fact. Right. Not a purely factual determination. That's correct. If we're going to the standard, which is, I think, actually the difficult question here, what's wrong — should you say — what's wrong with saying, which is what I was pursuing, that where there is a question that's improper, as there was here by the police, the only real question is, is a later initiation the fruit? And you say the State has to show it wasn't the fruit. That would have the virtue of making the law quite consistent here, as it is with 
Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment cases. That's a well-known concept. The Court has consistently found in the Miranda context that that kind of broad fruits analysis doesn't apply in Elston and other Why not? I, I understand because that there's a, a lot of language. Because the, the point of the fruits analysis is, has to do with the deterrence function of the Fourth Amendment, which is non, non-existent or much, much reduced in the Fifth Amendment context. And no, but the, the, the standard fruit analysis is when you get something like a statement, and that statement then leads to further evidence. We're not engaged. I mean, Justice Breyer wasn't using the fruits analysis in that sense. He, he, was, he was getting at the, at the same question we're all trying to get at. Was the later so-called initiation the product uh, of the improper police comment in the first place, or was it voluntary? And I, th- I think the Edwards rule is an important but limited rule. And the point of the Edwards rule is to address the particular problem that's caused by a question. It's not to intent- intended to address all of the other problems that can arise in connection no, with the No, I, I realize statement. that. But you, can, you concede, I think you concede, that the, ini- that the so-called initiation has got to be a voluntary initiation. You don't take the position that it's merely magic words. Isn't that correct? That's correct. All right. If that is correct, why do we not give some deference to the conclusion of the trial court that this was not voluntary? You say there was a legal error. What exactly was the legal error? The problem was that the trial court was not looking at all the factors that you would normally look at to decide voluntariness. It thought that in looking at initiation — What did it overlook? It overlooked the fact that he had been given the Miranda warnings that, as far as anybody — That's always true in, in every Edwards case. Right. Well, it's a All right. So that's case. a wash. It what overlooked the it fact do? that he knew that he had the right to remain silent and that the particular problem that had been caused by the question — Well, Mr. Which Fulton, was, I have to interrupt. They did not overlook the fact that he'd been given the Miranda warnings. She expressly commented on the fact that an hour and 17 minutes had elapsed since that time. Right. She, she didn't overlook the fact. She knew what the facts were. But she overlooked the significance of that in the analysis. But more importantly, she overlooked the significance of the fact that the defendant, at the time that he decided, a half hour later, that he wanted to talk to the police, the police had terminated the earlier questioning and had made it clear to him that they were going to honor his decision whether or not to talk to them without counsel presence. How, how those is it that she had overlooked that? I, I just don't get it. Be, uh, be, well, it, it. You know, the evidence is undisputed that one officer made the statement, another officer said no, they left, 30 minutes went by. What? What, what, exa- what, what exactly did she overlook? She did, she, what she did not give the proper weight to those facts, which in a proper uh, involuntar- voluntariness analysis are ones that are important. You're saying those facts could not reasonably be found to, be, uh, to uh, produce a situation in which the defendant believed he would be hounded to talk, so he said, what the heck, I'll talk. Right. Which is what Edwards is Right. Directed. And that Edwards was designed as a court. No fact finder, and this is mixed fact and law, could reasonably come to that conclusion. That when, it, when, when one of the officers, the last he had heard from the officers was, no, he doesn't want to talk. He already asked for a lawyer. We cannot talk to him now. You're couple, saying no reasonable judge could find that that defendant thought he would be hounded. Right. And the concern of Edwards, as the court has repeatedly explained, the concern of Edwards is that the court, that the police will wear down or badger the defendant. But once, there's, if there's been a single comment, count, as can happen. Mr. Feldman, it doesn't count as uh, badgering uh, or the equivalent that the police the walk in and they present not only the charges, but they present the application for the charges, which shows 
that the co-perpetrator had talked to the police, talked his head off, and put all the blame at every step on the way on this defendant. That did weigh heavily in the trial judge's mind. And was that improper to take into account? How would a reasonable person in this situation feel? Would he feel that he was impelled to speak because the co-perpetrator had... That, I mean, there's two points I'd like to make about that. One is, as far as I know, under Maryland practice, what they did is consistent with Maryland practice and is part of what's normally attendant on taking somebody into custody. And it's in the, doesn't count as questioning under Miranda, and it's, it's, a, it's a different problem. But secondly, that, that issue of handing him that charging document, which I think is probably a sound practice because it lets the defendant know what he's charged with, that practice is one that can happen and can have its influence on a defendant's decision whether to talk in any case and should be considered in a general involuntariness analysis. But it's not a decisive factor in this case, and it doesn't have to do with the particular concerns of It has Edwards. nothing to do with whether the defendant thinks he is going to be hounded. That's has correct. nothing to That's do correct. with That's whether correct. the defendant thinks he will be badgered and badgered until he finally talks. That's correct. There which are- is what Edwards is directed at. That's correct. They're already Edwards under- is directed at avoiding badgering, but the issue before us is initiation. That's not a question of badgering. It's a question of initiation. And don't the points that Justice Ginsburg raised go to whether the initiation is likely to have been a voluntary initiation? I, I don't think they do, because under the Court's decision in Bradshaw, it is initiation, and then there's always a separate voluntariness inquiry to take care of those problems. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Feldman. Mr. Ravenel. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. It is our position that to allow so-called curative measures would lead to police abuses. If curative measures are allowed, intentional coercive violations should never be allowed to be cured. In fact, what if, it, what if instead of the half hour or so, uh, 24 hours had passed? And they got a call from the uh, defendant and said, I want to talk now. Still, uh, is, that a, is that initiation on his part? I think that if there had been 24 hours that had passed, then you would, it would be a factor that you would consider in deciding whether the defendant has initiated the conversation. Okay. Of course, that so factor if you can work the other way. Uh, you would be up here saying, oh, he had 24 hours. He thought he was going to get the death penalty. He knew the other man was turning on him to implicate him in the murder. Uh, his agony was increasing. I mean, I, it, it seems to me the question is whether or not the curative measures were adequate. And, uh, of course, you know, we can play the game five minutes, 20 minutes, right. 30 minutes. We, we know that. But it seems to me when 30 minutes passed here, there were curative measures. Now, you say at the outset there can never be a curative measure. That, I don't think you have anything to any support for that in the case law? I certainly believe that the support is in Edwards versus Arizona that there should not be a cure unless the defendant himself initiates the contact. So sure. I think uh, there is. Sure. And I would have thought, uh, sorry. Sure. I would have thought you would have said then 24 hours doesn't make a difference. If there can never be a cure, if there's a violation because the question from Reese constitutes interrogation and you're telling us there's no cure, it doesn't matter how long it is. Now, I think what I'm, with all due respect, I think what I'm telling the court is that the practice should be, as it has been the last 25 years, that you do not allow cures of Edwards versus Arizona by the police intentionally violating one's rights and then attempting to cure it. But 
if this Court finds that there can be a cure, we want to participate in what would be a proper cure. A cure of what? That's uh, what it's a, a lot of this discussion has come down to. What are you curing? Are you curing <laughs> involuntariness of the confession, or are you curing the police uh, badgering? I thought that we were just trying to cure the badgering and then let the voluntariness of the confession be decided as voluntariness is normally decided, for which purpose you would take into account that he's been char- erroneously said he was charged with, uh, with murder or whatever. I disagree with Your Honor on, for two reasons. First, I think that as several members have certainly have said so far, that we should focus on whether there was a voluntary initiation. That has to be considered. Secondly, I've heard mentioned several times that Edwards only deals with badgering. I, I commit, commend this court to uh, Illinois, Smith versus Illinois, and Minnick versus Mississippi, where this court has said that Edwards is not only about badgering, but the court said it's about overreaching by the police, whether it's explicit or subtle. So it's not badgering only. And when the petitioner says that Edwards is only about badgering, this court has said that it's about more than badgering. It is whether there is overreaching by the police officers that is subtle, that is intentional, that is deliberate, that is deliberate, any overreaching. Okay, well, assuming there, was, right. assuming there was overreaching on the part of Officer Reese, my question is, is there any circumstance in which that overreaching can be cured? And I thought your, an- your, your, your answer is that, yes, that with a sufficient passage of time, it can be cured. And with all due respect, that was not my answer. My answer is that, and I will tell you, Your Honor, that I will not change that position, it should never be allowed to be cured. So once, but, Officer, once Officer Reese made his comment, there was no circumstance, even a week, a month, uh, relatives come in and say, we think you ought to talk, in no intervening circumstance, once there is that uh, one sentence of overreaching, he can never initiate contact uh, discussion. The better, please. in my opinion, the better policy, the better practice is that there should not be. Now, You're not if helping the, defendants. If I, in some cases, you are not helping defendants. Sometimes a defendant, after he talks to his relative, well, might conclude, boy, you know, I'd better cooperate with the police and get a lesser sentence. But you're saying that can't happen. Once, my, once the police uh, uh, make a, 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 a misstatement, he can never come forward and say, I want to confess. In my 20 years of trial practice, I've never found it to be in the defendant's best interest to communicate with the police without counsel. Mr. Ravenel, you, you are de- defending a judgment that no court in Maryland, as far as I know, uh, ever made. All of the courts thought that the law was, yes, the taint of an improper question by the police can be removed. Correct. So let's take the case as it comes to us. The taint can be removed. That is the law. Accepting that to be the law, what in your judgment would it take to remove the taint, the taint here being the, the statement that Officer Reese made? I'll be happy to participate in that conversation. And this is how we believe the taint can be cured, if at all. Number one, you put the suspect back in the position that he was in before the violation occurred. How do you do that? 
This is a violation of a right to counsel, not a right to remain silent, a right to counsel. The suspect asked for counsel. The best way to cure it is give him counsel. How else do you cure it? You tell him that he no longer, we were wrong when we told you you faced the death penalty. Suppose you do again, not face the death penalty. Suppose, again, we do not accept that position. You need another fallback position in, our, in order to argue the case before us. I don't agree that I need a, another fallback position because I believe that if the court finds that right to counsel, giving him counsel is not enough, other things I'm about to tell the court, I think, will also be a factor. For example, telling the defendant that he, in fact, does not face the death penalty. Very interestingly, uh, this court and the Siebert case, uh, in fact, uh, just, uh, just Kennedy's opinion, said that one of the things you consider is when there is a violation of the right to Miranda rights, you tell the suspect that was an improper violation of your right. That statement may not be admissible well, again. John, here. John's, in effect, did that here. Uh, cer- certainly one of the, the, the best curative devices is immediate correction from a superior, and that is exactly what happened here. Interestingly, what Your Honor said in the Siebert case is that when, and in fact, the plurality opinion, when you give an alleged cure in the midst of the violation, the defendant misses it. So given this alleged cure in the midst of the violation creates the problem. What you need to do is to So give you think you'd have a stronger case if Johns hadn't corrected Reese? I think, I, I think that, what we would have is a that, stronger case. That's a far case. stretch. It's no, I think the case would be proper if Johns did certain things. One is give him counsel. Now, I understand the Court says maybe we won't go that far. But if you're not going to give him counsel, what else can you do? You can certainly tell him that the comment by Officer Reese was improper. We will honor your right to an attorney. What Officer Reese said was wrong. As we pointed out brief, there was never a time when Detective Johns spoke to Blake directly and made any efforts to clarify or even resolve the, alleged, the violation. In fact, well, well, you, don't want the, says, you don't want the officer talking to Blake directly. I thought that would be another violation. No, no. Now that there is a violation, you have to cure it. You have to cure it. I don't know what a cure it is for someone to speak to him. But it's one of the to me that it's a bit much to say that the problem is that he didn't talk to Blake directly, uh, because that gets into another extended dialogue with the defendant that the defendant has not initiated. It seems it's much better in the defendant's presence to do what Johns did here, which is to rebuke Reese for the interrogation. With all due respect, I couldn't disagree more, because I think what has to be is that there has to be a direct comment to the suspect, that the suspect understands that this violation occurred. It was a violation of your rights, and we, the police, will not countenance what Reese did, and here is what we will do. We will get you counsel if you wish to have counsel. You are not facing the death penalty, young 17-year-old sitting in a cell in your underwear. That is not correct. Here is what we can do for you. We will, in fact, as this Court suggests in the plurality opinion and Siebert, you change location. You change the the interrogator. You give him time. As this Court said, in fact, Justice uh, Scalia's, maybe Dicta and McNeil said, you look at a lapse of time. You consider that there is a break in time. All of those factors may be, if all of those things were done, then you could become, begin to move closer to put in Blake back in the position well, that he was what, in what about just a simple thing like this, that there's an implication in what Reese said that he listens to in his cell? I guess you bet he'll want to talk to us now, huh? 
the implication is that he faces death and he'll be better off by talking to them without a lawyer. And so suppose Johns had said to the defendant, uh, Mr. Blake, I want to tell you something. My colleague here has implied that you will be better off because of the death possibility in talking to us without a lawyer. We want to tell you that isn't true. There is no way that you'll be better off talking to us without a lawyer. You will be at least equally, from your point of view, as well off if you talk to a lawyer. Now, that might have cured it, I guess. I think that if that was done, then we are moving in the right direction. But <laughs> the, 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 the right direction would be say, please don't talk to us. The, the, the right direction would be, <laughs> I would, I would as, as Mr. Blake's attorney, I would have appreciated that. <laughs> now, I will tell the court that I believe that when you add those factors, you really do get closer to curing what we think should not be cured. Several things this court said earlier, is, and, I, and I think is correct, several members of the court, is that we have to give deference to the trial court's finding. The government would have you pay no attention to the trial court's finding when the trial court heard Officer Reese, in fact, heard Officer Reese sit on the witness stand and lie under oath. The court found that Officer Reese was not worthy of belief. Not only did he violate Mr. Blake's rights, he then sat on the witness stand and lied about it. Now, do we want to encourage that kind of police abuse, where the police will abuse the rights of someone, then sit on the witness stand and lie, and then we say, well, the trial judge who had a chance to observe the demeanor, to watch the witnesses, trial judge, Judge North, who was actually present here, and who had a chance to observe each witness testify. Counsel, there's no dispute about the historical facts found by the judge. Everybody agrees this is the dialogue that took place, this is the time that took place. Those are factual questions. It's a very different question of what the significance of that is under the Edwards initiation rule. So it's not an issue of deference to the trial court judge. We know what the facts are. We're deferring to those findings of fact. It's a question of what the legal significance is. And, and, and what the Chief Justice says was true in Bradshaw and in Edwards and in Elstad. I, I will All ask questions which were mixed questions of law and fact where this court took the words, took the facts, and made a rule. And that's this case. I will direct the court to two cases. Uh, Sal Virginia College versus Russell, 499 U.S. 225, where this court said the following, deferential review of mixed facts, mixed questions of law and fact, is warranted where it appears that the district court is better positioned than the appellate court to decide the issue in question, or that probing appellate scrutiny is n will not contribute to the clarity of legal doctrine. The court further said in Miller versus Well, just to stop there, why is the trial court better suited to apply the Edwards rule to a set of facts that we would ex we accept based on deference to the fact finder? I, I find that interesting, Your Honor, because the court did the same thing in Elstad. This court, in fact, gave every deference to the trial court's finding in, in Elstad. So there's absolutely no reason why this court would not give the same deferential treatment to Judge North's decisions when Judge North, just as the trial judge in Elstad, got a chance to observe the witnesses who testified and found that that violation of Elstad's right was not intentional, that it was kind of a good-faith violation. That had an impact. And, in fact, in Siebert, the court again made reference to that, and in Justice O'Connor's dissent made reference to that. So it is clear that this court has given deference, clear deference, 
on every one of the cases I've mentioned in the past to a trial court's finding. Well, are you there's no reason to be different here. Are you arguing that trial court, even though there's agreement understanding on most of the historical facts, is still in a better position to make the judgment call as to whether it was voluntary or not? Yes, I am. And I will point the Court to Miller v. Fenton, 478 U.S. 104, where this Court said, equally clear, an issue does not lose its factual character merely because its resolution is dispositive of the ultimate constitutional question. This Court has made clear that you give deference to the trial judge's findings, even if it may have an impact on the ultimate resolution, even where it is a mixed question of fact and law. And that's all we ask for in this case. I believe, Your Honor, that when we consider that in this particular matter, the evidence is clear that Mr. Blake was responding to the comments by Officer Reese. And the trial court made that finding. The trial court made a finding that Officer Reese's comment was intended to elicit a response. Same thing this Court has said in Ennis. When you get to the next step, the question is, was that interrogation? The trial court made a factual finding it was interrogation. In fact, Petitioner concedes it was interrogation. Next step was, was it a response or was it new initiation of a new conversation by Blake? The trial court found that it was a response by Mr. Blake to the comments by Officer Reese. The trial court also made a finding that there, in fact, was no cure. That factual finding was given deference by the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals considered several things. It said you should consider the attenuation. This Court said you should consider change in interrogation, location of interrogation, change in the interrogator, excuse me, change in the location. And I believe that we add the fact that there had been no further advice to the, to the suspect that he did not face uh, the death penalty. The parties agree here. In fact, in the SG's, the General's brief on page 25, they say, if there has been any intentional coercive violation, there should not be a cure. The trial court found that the act of Officer John was intentional. I don't think anyone, anyone, even under, and under any standard of review, could find that Officer John, Officer Reese, excuse me, comment was not intentional. What was the quote from the SG's brief? I, I did. Uh, page 25. And what did they say? If I may. Maybe they said that. I'd be surprised if they said that. I'll be happy to do that. Police officers who engage in interrogation. Can you tell us where you're from? I'm sorry, page 25 of the SG's brief. I'm reading. Police officers who engage in interrogation after a suspect has invoked his right to counsel also run the risk of a judicial finding that any statement given was coerced, as we have here, if I may continue. In that event, the initial statement would be unusable for any purpose. Yes, if there was a judicial sure. finding that any statement given was coerced. Which is, which is what we, we have in the trial court finding, that there is, and in fact, it was coerced. The trial judge made a finding that this was an intentionally coercive act by Officer Reese. We're talking about, about the, the confession being coerced that the statement given was coerced. Correct. Not that his decision to talk to the police was coerced. 
I, I disagree that if there, in fact, was an initial, if there was, in fact, coercion by the police, that that coercion did not play a part in Mr. Reese, Mr. Blake deciding to speak. Yeah, well, and in fact, we're only talking about what the SG has conceded. Yes. He has conceded that if the uh, if it is found by the court that the statement given was a coerced statement, in that event, it would be unusable for any purpose. I understand. And, 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 the, and the Court of Appeals of Maryland said we're going to look at this in the legal sense, not the dictionary sense. Correct. And that's what we're reviewing here. And I think that when we review that, in a mixed question of fact or law, given all deference to uh, the trial court's finding, as this court has in the past in the cases I've cited, that in fact there is, was a violation, the violation was not cured, and that even if this court establishes curative measures, those measures must be designed to put the suspect back in the position that he was in prior to the police violation of his rights. We think that it is a dangerous path to go down to allow the police to abuse the suspect's rights and then cure it. One of the things I believe we learned from what occurred in Elstad and then in Siebert is that, in fact, in the plurality opinion in Siebert, this Court pointed out that after Elstad, some 20-something years, the police created policies and strategies designed to violate with the first question first. And, in fact, the plurality opinion pointed out that not only did the police create that strategy, what the police, in fact, started doing was omitting Miranda altogether. And this Court made reference to that in U.S. versus Harris, that what the police will do if you give them the opportunity they will abuse the rights and attempt to cure. Yeah, but, but if you're looking, if you're taking your standards seriously, yeah. the reason that uh, my, I was able to give my hypothetical before, sure. the reason that you'd have to say you will not be better off, uh, you will not be worse off uh, in respect to the death penalty, by you know, it won't make right. you any better off to talk to the lawyer. Yes. Sorry, strike. The reason that the policeman to cure would have to say, look, it's not going to help you in respect to the death penalty to talk without your lawyer, is because that was the implication of his question. That was the implication of the wrongful statement. The implication was, you're not going to get death if you talk to us without a lawyer. But if it had been some other questions, some questions, for example, about the crime, all you would have had to do was uh, eliminate whatever negative implication came out of those questions, which might have been nothing. Right. So well, but time there, but there, were, there was no finding to support the suggestion that it was just the death penalty that concerned him. He was also concerned, I thought, about the fact that his accomplice, Tolbert, had implicated him and yes. presumably implicated yes. him yes. too far. And, the, and the trial so it, there's, there's just no finding that it was simply the death penalty. I agree. And the trial court made clear that she was considering everything. What's important is that the trial court got a chance to hear Mr. Blake testify. The trial court understood. And his concern with Tolbert was a wholly legitimate reason for him to want to talk to the police and yes. get things straightened away right we, away. We do not dispute that at all. But what is important is that the trial judge got a chance to assess all of those factors. And the trial judge, even after assessing those factors, concluded that what impacted, that there was still a great impact on him, and it is the government's burden. It was Maybe their you burden. modify the standard. Maybe the standard ought to be uh, that where you have an, uh, an improper line of questioning after the warning, that the police 
either have to negative the implication of those questions, the relevant implication, or the State has to show that some other series of independent events, such as Justice Kennedy mentioned, made the difference, that is, caused the later uh, uh, request uh, to talk without a lawyer, and if they can't show the one or the other, then they lose. Correct. And that is what the trial judge did in this case. The trial judge considered those factors. And that is what we leave it to the judge. May, may I interrupt you with a, with a question? Yes. You seem to have taken the position that the state cannot cure an Edwards violation, which seems to me quite different from the trial court's ruling, because the trial court made a number of factual statements that seemed to me to be saying, had these things been done, the violation might have been cured. She referred to the fact he was still undressed, still in a cold cell. The, his parent was no parent present. He was scared, and he testified scared and thought he was facing death. Now, it seems to me the, the logical inference from the trial judge's statement is, had each of those things been different, I might have found a cure. Correct. Otherwise, why, should, why would she go through these now, facts? I agree, Your Honor, that the trial court considered that there can be a cure. And, in fact, the Court of Appeals in Maryland said so there can be a cure. See, it doesn't seem to me for you to prevail, you have to take the extreme position that there can never be a cure. Now, and, and that's why I think I, I, I hope I made it clear that. said they did not cure because they didn't do any of A, B, C, D, E, or F. I agree that I do not need this court to find that Edwards versus Arizona remains untouched for me to win. We do not need that because... When you consider what the trial court's finding was and the deference that was given to by the Court of Appeals, we went as well. What I am trying to say is that I think the better practice is that we do not allow the police to go down this line of starting to abuse uh, uh, rights and then curing it. Well, but I agree, seems, we don't, I don't need that. It really seems to me you're, you're adopting quite an extreme position because it does seem to me perfectly obvious if, for example, they got a lawyer or brought his parents in and they talked it over for 20 minutes and said, we think you ought to do it. Yeah. You, could, you could surely cure it in some facts. I certainly believe that from the teachings of Siebert and from other cases that this court clearly seems to be leaning towards a cure, that there can be cures. I know that the position on Edwards Arizona remaining intact is probably, in many ways, not where this court is, is leaning. I understand that. But I certainly understand we don't need to get to that extreme position to win because the facts in this case are so clearly in our favor from the tri- trial court's finding that, given it that any deference. Mr. Revenant, yes. uh, let me tell you the problem, problem I have with your case sure. and, and with your reliance on the, on the trial court's findings. I do not see how the fact that he's, he's there in the cell in his underwear, uh, the fact that he's 17, uh, the fact that he, he thinks uh, and has been led to believe erroneously uh, that uh, uh, there's a death penalty in the offing, uh, has anything to do with the question uh, that Edwards asks, which is whether the police or this individual initiated the conversation. I think that the problem is... That, that is the issue yeah. in these I think cases, the problem... Whether the police initiated the conversation that, that, uh, that produced the, uh, the confession. And I think that all those things are factors that the court can consider in deciding whether Blake voluntarily initiated the conduct. No, I don't think so. I think they go to whether the confession he gave was voluntary. But I don't see how they have anything to do with, with whether he initiated the conversation. Yeah, and with all due respect, this court in Elstad and in Siebert 
said that psychological pressures, which are very similar to the fruits analysis, can be considered on whether there's a Fifth Amendment violation. I, uh, in I fact, think, it, tell me if I'm wrong about this particular record. I thought that the trial judge put it rather simply, said there was an interrogation by a police officer named Reese. That's conceded, as I understand it, from Maryland, that the police asked a question. And then the trial judge said the, what Blake said was an answer to that question. Correct. That's how she read what happened. Correct. There was a question implying you better speak to us, and there was an answer to that question, not an initiation. Correct. That's — that's — what we're, we're dealing with in this case. And, and I agree, and that's why I said earlier that when we look at what Ennis says, and I made reference to Ennis earlier, that it's any comment, any statement designed to elicit a response. The trial court found that what Re- Officer Reese did was designed to elicit a response. The petitioner agrees that it was interrogation, therefore designed to elicit a response. The next question is, was it, did Blake respond? The trial court found, after hearing Blake testify, Hear another witnesses that Blake was merely, and I say merely, but very importantly, responding to what Officer Reese said, not initiating a new conversation, that it was a continuous matter of only 28 minutes. So your, your position, I guess, is, I, I think it is in, in your last answer, that we really shouldn't be phrasing the inquiry in terms of the the voluntariness of the suspect's statement at this point. We rather should be focusing it on whether the statement was, in fact, uh, a spontaneous initiation on his part or a response to the preceding police statement. Which That's the, the way you would phrase yeah. the issue for it. And which is what the trial judge did below. And when the trial judge made that finding that what Blake was doing was responding, because the trial court is in that unique position that this court or any other public court can ever be in, which is listening to the witnesses. We give the trial judges the duty to hear those witnesses and to make judgment calls based on what they hear from those individuals. We well, trust well ab- them absent of good cop, bad cop finding, and, and, I, and I repeat that they credited John's testimony here, this seems to me a very odd sort of interrogation. Uh, to say, no, no, you, we can't talk to him now. That's an interrogation. That's a stretch. Well, I, I would say this. The trial court certainly said it struck her as a good cop, bad cop routine. I will say the following. If you do exactly what Detective Johns and Officer Reese did in this case, and if the person does decide to speak to you, now whether you phrase it the same way Detective Johns did or not, the police are in no worse off case position than they would be if the person had continued to sit in that cell alone and not spoken. Therefore, however you do it, and the police will always come up with a creative way to do it. We know that from prior experience and past experience. They will always find a unique way to do it. Counsel, it is, my, is my understanding of the Maryland law in effect when this happened correct, that if you prevail on suppression, your client cannot face charges no matter what the other evidence is? Not if we prevail on suppression, no. If we prevail on suppression, the state still had the right to prosecute Mr. Blake. When the state chose to take an interlocutory appeal, the law was no longer the law. Right. But the law at the time was that if the state was not successful on appeal, they would be barred from prosecuting Mr. Blake. 
but they were not barred from going forward with their case. But that, the that, that, that law applies to this case at this time, correct? Correct. And I think that that should have nothing to do with how the Court rules on this particular matter, what the final result will be, whether we go to trial or not. Uh, I'll be happy to answer any other questions. Well, my time's up. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Ravenel. Ms. Grafe, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you. With respect to the standard of review, this Court said in Thompson v. Keohane that custody is a mixed question of fact and law, and voluntariness in Miller v. Fenton that voluntariness is a mixed question of fact and law. And so the historical facts are entitled to deference, but there's de novo review of the ultimate question of custody and voluntariness. And given the questions here about what constitutes a cure shows that that same standard should apply. It should be a legal standard, not a factual finding. How about the trial judge's determination? There was a question. Everybody agrees Reese, what Reese did was interrogate. Yes. And the trial judge then find there was an answer to that question. Is that a matter of fact? It didn't seem that the trial judge was treating that as a matter of law. Well, whether there was a cure and whether he initiated, the state's position should be a mixed question of fact and law. What was said is a historical fact. Whether what Detective Johns cured it and allowed Blake to initiate should be reviewed de novo. And with respect to initiation, it's important to note that in Bradshaw, the court said that there's a two-part inquiry. You look at, one, did the defendant initiate? And two, if he did, that's when you get to the voluntariness analysis. Is, is it fact or is it not fact, law, uh, in respect to the following? He's sitting there, and there's a question of what motivated him. Did it motivate him totally, that, his, uh, this thing about his co-defendant, or was he moved in significant part, moved, motivated, by the earlier, 30-minute earlier, uh, improper questioning? That sounds like a fact, or do you think it's not a fact? I think that is a fact, but under Seibert and Elstad is not the proper analysis. You don't look at, in Seibert and Elstad, the court did not look at whether the prior unwarned statement caused the second statement. The court looked at whether the cure effectively advised the suspect that he did not have to speak. And we're suggesting that the same analysis applies in the Edwards context. You don't look at whether the improper comment caused the initiation, you look at whether the cure effectively conveyed that there would be no more questioning, that the choice was up to the suspect and the police were going to honor that choice. And once that cure happens and the suspect indicates he wants to speak, there's initiation, and then the court can go on to the voluntariness analysis. The Edwards presumption of involuntariness imposes a high cost to the truth-seeking function of a trial, to society's interest in having relevant evidence admitted at trial. And when the purpose of Edwards is not served, when a suspect understands that questioning will cease, that high cost is not justified. May I ask one question before you sit down, if you're through? Is it your understanding that the trial judge held that an Edward violation may not be cured or that she held that on the facts here it was not cured? My reading is she found on the facts here it was not cured. So that the answer to your, the question presented in your cert petition really is answered. We all agree it can be cured. Well, it depends what but can. The question you asked is whether it can be cured. 
Well, this Court has never addressed, and in fact, there's disagreement here as to whether it can be cured. So here the trial court did look. The trial court really didn't look at the analysis and how you look but at whether it's cured. But you do cured. agree that the trial judge did assume it could be cured? Well, she looked at, she looked at, I guess it's difficult to understand exactly. She was looking, she looked at Edwards, she looked at voluntariness, she talked about attenuation, so she did acknowledge that if it was six months later, he could give a statement. So there could have been a cure? Yes. Yeah. If, uh, if you lose this case, can the defendant be prosecuted federally under the carjacking statute? I'm not aware. He cannot be, I'm not aware of whether he can prosecute it federally. He cannot be prosecuted in state court, though. Under Maryland law at the time, if, if we do not prevail in this appeal, he cannot be prosecuted in state court. The prosecutors were well aware of that when they determined to appeal. Yes. But perhaps they were worried that they didn't have a case without the defendant's statements. The, the statute puts the state in a difficult position. It's been changed now. But at this time, the, the prosecution did have to decide whether to appeal the statement, and uh, that law has been changed. But with respect to Blake, he will not be able to be prosecuted if the state does not prevail in this court. Detective Johns cured the impropriety here. He made it clear to Blake that there would be no more questioning, and it was Blake's choice whether to speak or remain silent. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. The case is submitted.